Church family, thank you for coming prepared to worship the Lord this morning. You know, it's so important that we sing worship to our great God. As I was thinking this morning, I think that's something unique about being a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember as part of my intercultural religious studies degree, I'd visit different places of worship. And you know what? As I was recalling while we were singing that song, I don't remember many of the places I visited of other religions where there was much singing going on. There was talking, there was chants, there was repetition of words. But it's unique that God's people are a singing people. Amen? And even yesterday, I experienced that in a new way. We hosted a funeral for a lady in our church, her niece. But what I learned about that culture yesterday is nieces and nephews are sons and daughters. They are tight. And uh, according to God's providential sovereignty, he called one of his servants home to be with him, who was only 48, and she was represented our nation as the deputy high commissioner to Nigeria, South Africa, and to Spain. 48 years old. And we had her service yesterday. And what amazed me is when we went to the gravesite, I was traveling in the funeral car in the front, and I looked behind, and there was police escorts, and I couldn't see the end of the processional of vehicles heading to Mount Lawn. And then when we got there, over 150, 200 people, that's not common at a gravesite, and then I noticed they all had white sheets. And I said to a friend of mine, I said, what are the white sheets? He said, oh, pastor, we're going to sing. And I went, I don't have a sheet, and I'm not great at leading without a pianist or someone who can sing. But you know, it was amazing as I stood there. There we were in the middle of Mount Lawn Seminary. Other people there doing their thing. But what a testimony of a group of people at a place that represents death singing and worshiping God. It was amazing. I sat there and went, what must people be thinking? Why are these people not crying? Why are they not just so discouraged. It's because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And we knew where our sister is and we were just laying her body to her temporary resting place because she's going to rise again because Christ has risen. So thank you for coming today with hearts prepared to worship our great King because he deserves it. Amen? Well, you've heard me talk in the past a little bit about growing up in what was Rhodesia and then became Zimbabwe. And one of those experiences was I got to live through war. I got to experience being rocketed. I got to experience being bombed. Our garage was a bomb shelter. We would rehearse as a family. At school, we didn't have fire drills. We had bomb and rocket drills. And one thing I remember as I reflect back on that is that as a kid, I wasn't really afraid. As I got older and I thought about what we were going through, I was actually more fearful as an adult. But as a kid, this is just life. Kind of exciting. Real life G.I. Joes. It's happening, you know? <laughs> but the thing that I realized is we used to travel in convoys. So if we went on vacation, we couldn't just get on the 401 and say, I'm going to head to London. No, you had to register and be a part of a convoy where you would travel about 15 to 16 vehicles like this. And in front of us would be an armed vehicle with soldiers. Behind us would be an armed vehicle with soldiers. And that's how you would get safely to London. And as we would travel every now and then, the convoy would stop. And I knew my parents were thinking, uh-oh. But we as kids were going, we're going to see some action. And then you'd see the soldiers get out of the vehicles and disperse themselves into the brush and into the fields, and we'd wait. And then they'd come back, and then we'd take off again, and away we'd go. And as I was going through this passage, and as I was thinking about it, I was like, why wasn't I afraid? I wasn't afraid as a kid because I knew that someone else was fighting the battle for me. I just got to enjoy the ride. 
They were fighting the battle for me. And what we're going to see in our passage today and what we're going to look at today is on the move, our battles belong to the Lord. Our battles belong to the Lord. He is our divine commander-in-chief. And that's where we're going to go today. Last week, we left off with the Israelites heading north again towards the promised land. Praise God. They had successfully bypassed the lands of their relatives. I thought about that and I thought, hmm, is that maybe a biblical way I can avoid having to go to uh, some in-laws visits sometimes? No. Don't use that, okay? That's not the right application of that. But they by bypassed their relatives, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And then in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, we read there, they got their uh, latest marching orders from their divine commander-in-chief. Verse 24, set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I've given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. In his orders, he gave them five imperatives and two promises. He said, set out now. Cross the Arnon Gorge, begin, take possession, and engage him in battle. And he promised them he would give into their hands Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his country. And also that very day, he would also begin to put the terror and fear of them on all the nations unto, under heaven. So we see here, that on the journey as a child of God, listen closely, obediently following the lead of our commander-in-chief will inevitably lead to opposition. That's just the reality. If we follow obediently the commands of our commander-in-chief, we will face opposition both in the spiritual and in the physical realms. Therefore, I encouraged myself through God's word this week and I encourage you to experience victory over oppositions. The Israelites then and we today must learn to live by faith, not by sight. Knowing that our battles belong to the Lord. Who do our battles belong to? The Lord. They belong to the Lord. So let's see how they did. If you have your Bibles open, we'll continue in chapter 2. Reading from 26 down to chapter 3, verse 11. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon. So remember the instruction? Go engage him in battle. So I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, Let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot. As the descendants of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us. Until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon king of Heshbon refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. In order to give him into your hands as he has now done. The Lord said to me, see I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. 
But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured, we carried off for ourselves. From our, on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. But in accordance with the command of the Lord our God, you did not encroach on any of the land of the Ammonites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok, nor that around the towns in the hills. Next we turned and went up along the road toward Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with his whole, arm, his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle at Edri. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to, do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time, we took all the cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, with high gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Hashbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from, this, from the cities we carried off for ourselves. So at that time, we took from these two kings of the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan from the Anon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians. The Amorites call it Sinir. We took all the towns on the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salika and Edri, towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Raphites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning as we look into the topic that our battles belong to the Lord. And there, there are three principles for engaging in battle on our journey, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord that I want us to remember this morning. So knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord, number one, there's no need to rush ahead. There's no need to rush ahead and take things into our own hands. How many of you are that type of personality? You just want to get the job done and get it done quickly, right? Exactly. But when the battle belongs to the Lord, there's no need to rush ahead and take things into our own hands. Were any of you surprised by how Moses first engaged the king in battle? When I read it this week, I was. When the divine commander-in-chief gives the green light after 38 years of wandering and says, engage him in battle, I pictured something very different than the first move Moses made. As he had done with the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites, Moses engages in battle by sending messengers to the king offering peace. Huh. In essence, he was negotiating a treaty with the people and these people were not even distant relatives. And then as we read in verse 29, he not only made a peaceful offer of goodwill, but he went on and told the enemy their battle plan. Basically, he says to the king, we need you to do this for us. And by the way, until we cross the Jordan into the land, the Lord our God is giving us. Wow. You know, this past week, if you've been following the news, we've seen an increase in the tensions in the Middle East. And there was much talk and speculation early in the week about how the U.S. would respond to the drone attack on their forces stationed in Jordan. 
And as I watched it, later in the week, it was reported that the Pentagon had decided how they would respond. But what did they do? They kept it secret. They kept it secret. Because in war, it's not common to just lay out your plans to the enemy. And here Moses says, and by the way, we need you to do this until we cross the Jordan to the land the Lord our God is going to give us. What I realize is when the battle belongs to the Lord, the rules of engagement are different. There's no need to panic. There's no need to shy away. Because even when others oppose us and refuse our offers of goodwill as King Sihon did, we know that we know that we know God is always working behind the scenes for the good of his people. Amen? Can you look back on your own life now and go, I see how he was working behind the scenes. I see how he's working behind the scenes. In Isaiah chapter 64, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Don't rush ahead and take things into your own hands. He acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your waste. And of course, we're all familiar with Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. My mom's favorite verse. Her favorite verse. And so, it was the Lord's sovereign will for the Israelites to defeat Sihon and seize all his land. Therefore, what was the Lord going to do? He was going to work out all the details for them to land, as we learned two weeks ago, in the destination where he was taking them, which included making the king Sihon's, as the Bible says, spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into the hands of the Israelites. As he had done by this point when Moses is recalling this with the second generation. The request of Moses did not change Sihon's heart. It simply exposed his heart-heartedness. The Lord did the same thing with Pharaoh. You will remember. Have you ever wondered as I have in the past? Doesn't seem fair that God would harden someone's heart and then punish them for what they decided when their hearts were hardened. Ever felt that when you've read the scriptures and wondered that? Why would God harden their hearts just so he could judge them so severely? As one author wrote this week, which really helped me, we must approach these hard-to-understand passages through the lens of the rest of scripture from which we know that God is good. And everything he does is righteous. He always has a reason. And in the case of Pharaoh, we must not forget that Pharaoh was not an innocent or godly man. He was a brutal dictator overseeing the terrible abuse and oppression of the Israelites. For over 400 years, the Egyptian pharaohs had enslaved the Israelites and even ordered that their male babies be killed. The Pharaoh God hardened was an evil man. It's also important to note that the scripture records on a couple occasions that Pharaoh hardened his own heart 
against letting the Israelites go. In Exodus 8, verse 15, this is what we find. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And then again in Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, we read, This time also Pharaoh hardened his heart. Although it appears both God and Pharaoh were active in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I believe a better way to understand what was going on was that in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of Sihon, is that both men by their own conscious will refused Israel's request of them. Pharaoh refused to let God's people go and King Sihon refused to let God's people pass through his land and God simply confirmed what was already in their hearts which was an arrogance against the Lord and his people Israel. And what did God do? He simply leveraged their heart condition for his mission. That's what the hardening of heart was. He simply leveraged their heart condition for his mission to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and to defeat King Sihon, which we've just read about, in order to give them his land. In Romans 9, verse 17 and 18, the scriptures declare, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Brothers and sisters, on the journey, we must remember God's ways are not our ways. He is sovereign. He will show mercy on who he wants to show mercy, and he will harden whom he wants to harden. This gives me encouragement, though, for the journey that I can trust his sovereign authority even over those who oppose me. I can trust God's sovereign authority even over those who oppose you. There's an interesting few verses that I just want to read for you which illustrate this. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel and he had this dream about this massive tree and it provided fruit and shade and all of a sudden it was getting cut down and no one could interpret it for him and then Daniel came and interpreted it for him and he, and he said, sir, this tree is actually a story about you. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was going to be removed from his position and uh, cast out into the wilderness to live amongst the beasts of the field. And it says he actually ate grass like an ox. And you can read a description of how his hair looked and how his nails looked. Don't comb your hair. Don't cut your nails. Nails for seven years and you'll know what it was like. And then after seven years, listen to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. At the end of that time, this is in Daniel 4, 34 to 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are, gay, are, are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, someone who was opposed to Daniel and his God, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
You won't let my people pass through your land? It's okay. Those who are proud, he is able to humble. And so we see in verse 31 of our passage today that before the Israelites even began to engage Sihon in battle, the Lord was already engaged in his mission on their behalf. Isn't that encouraging? He was already engaged in the battle on their behalf. He said there, see, I've begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. You see, Sihon, like Pharaoh, was an instrument in God's sovereign hand whose stubbornness leveraged by God became the path of victory for Israel. God's work in Sihon's life did not rob King Sihon of personal freedom to act, nor did it absolve him of his responsibility for his actions. Both Pharaoh and the king chose to bring further judgment on themselves and their nations by hardening their own hearts against God's orders. Both were inexcusable for their disposition. And in both cases, Pharaoh and King Sihon, God's divine action was in accordance with their human disposition. Think about the plagues. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, bringing those plagues against Egypt, that was not unjust. In fact, the plagues, as terrible as they were, actually demonstrated God's mercy. Have you ever thought about looking at the plagues as an act of God's mercy? Well, they were. In that he did not completely destroy Egypt, which would have been a perfectly just penalty. And the hardening of King Sihon in the passage we read today, the command for Moses to launch in battle, and the devastating results which we read for the Amorites, all point to the fact this was not Israel's war. This was Yahweh's war. This was a battle for the purpose of asserting his dominion over hostile and unrepentant forces of evil that would attempt to prohibit his lordship. You know, the concept of such war, or any war for that matter, but especially Yahweh war, is difficult. And it may seem incompatible with the message of the gospel. In fact, someone said that to me this week. They were reading ahead. How could God, who is so loving, tell them to engage in battle? We must not forget that the gospel also speaks of severe divine judgment against all who reject and remain in stubborn obedience, disobedience. Listen, divine judgment is part of the gospel. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not divine judgment but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath, His divine judgment remains on them. The Lord our God has no alternative in the face of hopeless unrepentance but to destroy such wickedness from His presence. Do you thank God daily for his undeserved mercy and grace in your life? He shows mercy to who he shows mercy. And he hardens who he chooses to harden. You are here today. I'm here today because he showed us undeserved mercy and grace. Do your life choices indicate that you perhaps take his grace for granted? 
Do you intentionally keep a close, con a, a clear conscience before God, repenting of known sins and keeping a soft heart towards Him? Are you intentionally connecting with the body of Christ outside of Sunday service? Because connecting with the body of Christ is critical against being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Did you hear Ziad's testimony this morning? I have recently joined a discipling community. That is a wise decision. Because listen what it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 to 15. See to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. That can only happen if we're in relationship with one another. As long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Being able to encourage one another daily, keep an eye on one another daily, will help to prevent our hearts from being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. First principle that we learn through this passage today, there is no need to rush ahead and take things into your own hands. Secondly, because the battles in our life belong to the Lord, victory will ultimately come through Him. Victory will ultimately come through Him. So does that mean then, Pastor Calvin, that I just sit back and wait for the Lord to do everything? No! With each divine promise, there is often a call for personal response. That's what you'll find as you go through Scripture. So how do you experience victory? Victory is experienced when one battles by faith in obedience to the Lord's direction. That's how you experience victory. When by faith you do what he tells you to do, engage him in battle, and in obedience to the Lord's direction you engage. There are two dimensions of Yahweh war that we need to remember in our own journey. There's the invisible divine intervention of God and there's the visible human action which we are responsible for. So believing that God would fight for them and in obedience to his directions, they engaged King Sihon in battle at Jahaz. Look at what it says in verse 32. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle... At Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down. Were they sitting there doing nothing? No. Together with his sons and his whole army. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them. Men, women, and children, we left no survivors. But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured, we carried off for ourselves. They were fully engaged by faith, obediently in Yahweh's war. And note Moses in his, in his recollection helps the second generation to understand who their victory ultimately came through. Verse 33, the first part, when Sihon, the Lord our God, he says, when Sihon in verse 32 and all his army came out to meet us in the battle of Jesus, who? The Lord our God delivered him over to us. Then at the second half of verse 36, the Lord our God gave us all of them. Reminding them and us today that the Lord is sovereign over all nations and over all historical events. Do you believe that? And notice the contrast of the report from this battle with Sihon. With that of the first generation 
and how they reported after the ten spies came back and gave them their opinion of the land that they had explored in chapter 1, verse 28. Here in verse 36, Moses recalls, specifically referring to the towns, okay? Not one town was too strong for us. That's the NIV translation. In the New American Standard Bible, it says, There was no city that was too high for us. Do you remember what they said, the ten spies? We saw cities there with walls that go to the sky. And here, because the Lord fights their battles and by faith and obedience they went out, <laughs> what's the report now? There was no city that was too high for us. The first generation in fear, unbelief and disobedience did not see the victory and deliverance that God had promised for them. But the second generation in faith and obedience tasted victory. 38 years wandering. And all of a sudden they tasted victory. And in terms of those large cities with walls up to the sky, all they could report is, the Lord, our God, gave us all of them. He gave us all of them. And note, Moses doesn't give any details about the specific plan of how their military action actually happened or the resources, including the weapons that were used. We don't hear that. Instead, he focused the people's attention on the primary resources needed for them for the battles ahead as they were on the move towards the promised land, and that is courage and faith in Yahweh, who will go before them and fight for them. And did you notice verse 37? What did he say there in verse 37? But in accordance with the command of the Lord our God, you did not encroach any of the land of the Ammonites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok, nor that around the towns in the hills. Good reminder. Even in battle, we must never forget God's rules of engagement. No freewheeling. This is his battle. Laid out the rules for them. He was the divine commander-in-chief. And they obeyed, and they listened. Now in this section, I at least found, similar to the tension we feel when we read about God hardening people's hearts, there can be an unsettledness. Did you, did you feel that at all as we read through the passage about how those who were representing Yahweh completely destroyed men, women, and children? There were no survivors. It's difficult for us to reckon the way the Israelites destroyed entire nations and killed innocent people. Took over their cities and lands, carried off their livestock. But like the hardening of people's hearts, we must not forget as we wrestle through these tough issues that every person, including each one of us, is born totally depraved possessing a corrupt, sinful nature, separated from God and liable to the wrath of God and to eternal punishment. So from a biblical perspective, how innocent were any of these people? How innocent were you and me? We are all guilty of falling short of the glory of God and being liable to the just eternal judgment of God. 
The nations Israel encountered east of the Jordan and the ones they were about to encounter in the promised land were wicked nations. And sadly, as we even see in our world today, sometimes even children are tragically affected by the sinful choices of those they are surrounded by, who come under the anger and judgment of a holy God. These people were brutal people who sacrificed their own children to false gods. They had male and female prostitutes serving in their temples as an important part of their religious worship services. That is why their annihilation was ordered by the Lord and done on his behalf. Remember, this is Yahweh's war. Israel, in this battle, engaged and functioned as the army of the Lord. If these nations had not been exterminated, Israel would have been in constant danger of being tempted by pagan idolatry. In fact, that's exactly what happened during the period of the judges. And God had to chasten his people to bring them back to the true God. Have you ever experienced God's chastening to pull you back when other things are starting to take his rightful place in your life? I have. I remember it very clearly. My junior year of university, driving from the University of British Columbia Sports Clinic back to Trinity Western University, with the reality that my dream to play professional rugby to represent Canada had become my God. And on the way back in my little car to Langley, British Columbia, he chastened me. And I realized then that my sense of identity, my sense of value, and my sense of security, I had found now in rugby rather than in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, sometimes he may give you a second chance to work through that. Other times he may remove the idol from your life. Because he knows what is best. And we must not forget also about these wicked people is that they were not left without a witness from God. You need to understand God is just. He didn't leave Sihon and his people without a witness. First of all, he had a witness of himself through creation, but as well through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who actually lived in Canaan. Further, the news of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of Egypt, and Israel's deliverance through the Red Sea had come to their ears, giving them witness that Jehovah, the God of the people of Israel, alone is the true God. God had been long-suffering with these wicked nations, even in Abraham's day. But now, their time had run out, and their judgment had come. And I had the opportunity yesterday on the way to that graveside service to share that with the funeral director in the car. I don't think he had a clue what I was going to say to him in that little short distance. But he opened the door, God opened the door, and he said, our world is in a mess. I don't know how it's going to get any worse. And I said, sir, it's going to get worse. Until Jesus comes back, it's going to get worse. You need to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so I shared with him, pray for him that God would save him. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Why can't he save a funeral director from here on the way to Whitby? Of course he can. Pray for him this week, would you? Pray for him. So I ask you, are you involved are you engaged? Are you just sitting back hoping the Lord will do it all? Are you daily preparing to engage in battle? 
We are in a battle with an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But rejoice, our commander-in-chief came so that we may have life and have it to the full. Who or what are you relying on for victory in the battles you are fighting? I'd encourage you to read Ephesians 6. I don't have time this morning. Read it. You have to be very intentional and engage in battle. Our enemy comes to seek, steal, kill, and destroy. Third principle, because the battles belong to the Lord, we do not need to fear our enemies. Hallelujah. We don't need to fear our enemies. First it was Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon. Now in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, They turned and went up along the road, just traveling along the way, toward Bashan and ran into another major roadblock. Og, king of Bashan, who with his whole army marched out to beat the Israelites in battle at Edri. Have you found this? On the journey, sometimes it just feels like it's one battle after another. Doesn't it? You just get through one thing and all of a sudden you turn the corner and there's another roadblock on the journey. No sooner had they fought Sihon and all his people at Jahaz experiencing God's wonderful deliverance than they found themselves right in the crosshairs of another enemy. Standing on the threshold of the promised land. Remember the first generation warriors, they're gone. They are now standing on the threshold of the promised land. And the Israelites had one more battle to engage in. And what the Lord said to Moses says, he and the people are stopped in their tracks by another threat is so good for us to hear. What did the Lord say to Moses in verse 2 of chapter 3? Do not be afraid of him. For I have delivered him into your hands along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. Do not be afraid of him. I have delivered him into your hands. Sometimes, you know, the biggest obstacle moving forward on the journey is not necessarily who or what's in front of us, but it's the fear within us. It's not the who or the what. It's the fear within us. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 to 15 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that... Sorry, I'm in the wrong passage there. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I never thought about it much until this week in this way. But a lot of times we excuse our fear, when the Bible says do not be anxious, we excuse our fear as not really sinful. Sin is anything that's displeasing to the Lord. So if my fear is entangling me from moving forward with God's commands in my life, that's sin. And here we're told, throw it off. Throw it off and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, th hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart on the journey. Throw it off. Do not be afraid of him. I have delivered him and his land into your hands. And so Moses, in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 3, does exactly that. And they witnessed that the Lord had given 
King Og of Bashan and all his army into their hands. You see, the Lord wanted them to learn on the move, right on the journey towards going into the promised land, that the Lord is with them. The Lord is with us. He will empower them. He will empower us to overcome our fears and move forward. 1 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Lord our God is faithful and can be trusted. And did you pick up the headlines in the post-battle debrief in verse 11 of chapter 3? Look there. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Raphaites. Oh, who were the Raphaites? Remember, the gigantic people who were a frightful, terror-inflicting people. They're so big and tall and strong. And here in the debrief, it just says, Og of Bashan was the last of the Raphaites. And how big was he? Who, how big was the king who God had told Moses earlier, don't be afraid of him? This is where you have to understand they were truly walking by faith, not by sight. Because it says there, his bed was decorated with iron and was more than 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. I would love a bed that big. He was a big man. And what did, what did God say to Moses? Don't be afraid of him. I'm going to give him and his army into your hands. And as God had given Israel victory over the giant of Og, that generation would be encouraged to know that victory over whoever they face in the land that they're about to go and possess, God is with them. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. You won't go anywhere. If you see an animal in a snare, they're not going anywhere. Fear of man is like that. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. These victories over Sion and Og, the two mighty kings of the lands east of the Jordan were preparing them for the battles they would fight when they arrived in the promised land. They were getting their first real taste of warfare and quickly discovering that the Lord their God could be trusted to overcome every enemy. All they would have to do is obey God's orders, trust His promises, and courageously engage their enemies. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't shy back. In contrast to the previous generation, which through unbelief and rebellion had disqualified themselves from entering the promised land from Kadesh Barnea, this account showed there was no limit to what God is able to do for and through his people, if they will just trust and obey him. If the battle belongs to the Lord and we are on his side, what or whom do we need to fear? By his mercy and saving grace, we are on the winning side. At the end of the day, God wins. So I ask you this morning, what are you most fearful of in your life right now? And I encourage you to do this. Take it to God in prayer. Remember that he is on the throne. He has good plans for you. No weapon formed against his people will prosper. Amen? So as we close this morning, let's celebrate together the undeserving mercy and grace that the Lord has shown us. Let's celebrate that our battles belong to the Lord. 
And that through Jesus Christ, he has already, listen, he has already defeated and overcome our two greatest enemies, sin and death. Praise God. Praise God that our battles, even our personal salvation, belong to him. And he went ahead while we were yet sinners and fought for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who has overcome. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great encouragement to our hearts this morning from your word. Father, thank you that our battles belong to you. Help us to be obedient children of yours who do not rush ahead and take things in our own hands. I pray, God, that we would wait on you. I pray that we'd be a people who celebrate that victory ultimately does come through you. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be courageous to know that we do not need to fear our enemies. Jesus Christ, thank you that you came and overcame. Help us now to live as people who are victorious through Jesus Christ. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Did you notice it says we will overcome? Didn't say we hope we will. Uh, no, it said we will overcome by divine intervention, the blood of the Lamb, human action, and the word of our testimony. So as we got into the scary world, please let's be confident to know that the battles we face on the journey belong to the Lord. I don't need to rush ahead. I don't need to take things into my hands. Victory will come through Him. We just declared it. And we don't need to fear our enemies. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So go this week and live like overcomers. Amen? God bless you.